Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Week Ahead. I'm Tony Nash, and today we're joined by Arno Venter from South Africa, uh, Tracy Schugart, and Albert Marco. Um, we had a big Fed meeting. We've had some really interesting things happening with BOJ this week. And so, of course, we're going to talk about central banks breaking things today. Arno is going to talk us through that. Uh, Tracy's going to walk us through diesel and refineries. There's quite a lot happening there and some things we've talked about for a long time, but it's it's a good reminder of what's happening in those markets. And then we had a big announcement in the U.S. about uh, Venezuelan migrants uh, and want to dig into that a little bit and understand what is happening there. So before we get started, I want to let you know about a new free tier we have within CI Markets, our global market forecasting platform. We want to share the power of CA Markets with everyone. So we've made a few things free. First, economics. We share all of our global economics forecasts for the top 50 economies. We also share our major currency forecasts, as well as Nikkei 100 stocks. So you can get a look at what do our stock forecasts look like. There is no credit card required. You can just sign up on our website and get started right away. So check it out, CA Markets free. Look at the link below and get started ASAP. Thank you. Guys, thanks so much for taking time out of your week for this. Arno, it's great to have you on. Uh, thanks for coming. So you, I'm, I've got a tweet on the screen. You pretty much called how the Fed would move uh, this week uh, and said the reaction would be a nightmare to trade. So can you talk us through that? Why, why is it a nightmare to trade? Well, I mean, to be to be honest, I wish I can take credit for for calling the outcome. Um, but the the tricky outcome I was actually looking for was a Fed that decided to drop the 2023 dot to show no more hikes for this year, and then ramp up the 2024 dots to you know above five percent. So that was actually what I was going for. And my thinking with that was that if we got that, it would have been a nightmare for the markets to to digest. Uh, because you would have a dovish outcome on the 2023 dots because no longer seeing scope for November, but then obviously ramping up to 2024. And I just thought that would be the worst case scenario for markets out there because you would have so much two-way volatility. But I mean, in the end, they actually delivered quite a quite a hawkish message. You know, um, I expected them to move up that 2024 one, but it, it was, I didn't expect them to do 2025. I thought that was quite hawkish, you know, that was quite a, a strong message from them saying that not only are we going to hike November, but we're going to follow through with, you know, we only see scope for 50. And if you think about it from a timing perspective, right, the fact that they had 100 priced in for June, that meant that, you know, cuts could have potentially happened somewhere, let's say quarter two, um, as early as that, as, as if you think of four hikes making room for that within their meetings, mm -hmm. the fact that they went 50, probably pushes that all the way back to the second half of next year and then only the first half of 2025. So that was pretty hawkish stuff. Um, definitely not what I expected on that 2023 dot. For me, you know, it's like that last hike, you know, does it really matter at this stage in the cycle? You know, I think they could have let that one out and just still had a, you know, still gave a signal that, listen, higher for longer is here to stay. But that that last hike, I just don't know whether that was, you know, whether it's worth it at this stage. We also had Powell kind of alluding to the same thing. You know, they asked him saying, listen, why not just hike there now? Why do it a month later? Does it really matter? And he even said, listen, maybe one more hike doesn't matter. But anyway, yeah. So, so I wish I could why, take credit. That's interesting. Why do you think they're waiting? Do you think they're spooked? Do you think they're looking at markets and they're a little bit worried about things? I think what happened is I think they 
their communication, we, we know they don't like to surprise when it comes to the rate decision itself. They would often surprise with the statement and the language and the tone, et cetera. What they don't like to do is spook us on rates. And we had, what was it, four or five or six of the FMC members coming out, basically telling us they feel it's better to pause in September. So I think the only reason why they paused this time around is because they told us they were going to do it and that they don't want to spook the markets. We went into blackout. They couldn't really change that view. Um, but I mean, I, it's silly. It's silly to this whole skip thing. You know, it's if you're going to hike anyway, just hike, you know, get it over with, get it up to that level. But I mean, I know, I know they would say that they don't have a, a level in mind, but, you know, we know they have a level in mind. Just get to that level and then keep it there. But this flip flopping is just, you know, but it is what it is. I mean, that's, right, that's central. Getting to six always seemed a little bit extreme, right? Yeah, I mean, look, inflation was very scary. I mean, it's still yeah. scary if you're looking at what's happening now in commodity markets. You know, I think they're getting a little bit of a of a wake up call. It was quite interesting to hear Pal talk about their forecasters. You know, saying that you know they've got the best in the business. Okay, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure about that. You know, but anyway, I mean, six percent. We're so close to it. Did I think we were going to get close to six when they started? I didn't think so. Um, but you know, inflation was just, it's, it's been on a rampage. So it, the level makes sense, but you know, doing this whole skip thing for me is, it's just a waste of time. Yeah. I used to work for two of the forecasters they rely on and they're really good talkers. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, their, their, pro their problem, their problem is, is that is simply inflation. I mean, they're trying to sit there and be cute about, you know, oh, data driven, so on and so forth. But because of the political policies that are countering any kind of Fed policy, I, I, you know, th they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I, I've always said that they're going to get to 6%. One way or another, they're going to get there. Um, and that's mainly due to inflation. And that, it's just, it's not stopping. It's reaccelerating. Oil has been on a rampage. You know, they can sit there and put out whatever you know, dot plots they want. But I mean, I don't even take those seriously, to be honest with you. I mean, I, th I think last year, their dot plot said they'd be down to 1%. I mean, that's uh, right. It's a joke, you know? It's good for sell-side research, right? I mean, it's it's good fodder for, for sell-side research. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's fine. You want to you mm -hmm. talk to fundamental guys and, you know, data-driven uh, traders? Sure, you're going to look at all that sort of stuff because it moves the markets in the short term. But if you look over the long term, there are political their political policies have gotten in the way. And this is where we are. It was so, quite clear, you know, from what he has to say that they, they're not really sure of anything right now. You know, they, they gave us these dots and yes, it was, it was, it was much more hawkish than I thought it would be, but it, it doesn't seem like they really know where it's going. I think when he says we are taking this meeting by meeting, they really mean it this time because they have no clues. And listen, when we get to November, we'll make a call and see whether that's the right one type of thing. I think yeah, there, Arno, go, go ahead, Albert. Yeah, there's no question. His Arno is absolutely correct. Is they're taking a meeting by meeting? That they're they're forced to take it meeting by meeting now. There is no long-term strategy that the Fed has or policy or tools in the in the toolbox that they can use to bring inflation down to two percent again. That is a pipe dream. It's not gonna happen. And more, more importantly, you've actually seen some Fed research come out uh, recently talking about, oh, well, maybe 4% should be the, the standard uh, going forward, you know? And, and they've already, they're already starting this narrative, Tony. 
Right. You know, they're already starting it. Now, I don't think that we're going to say uh, the Fed say, oh, 4% is the target. But don't be surprised if 2.75 or 2.5 and then three comes along in a year or two and so on and so forth, because there's just no possible way we're getting back to 2%. Well, they'll, they'll work on inflation bands like they work on rate hike bands, right? Within yeah. 50 basis points or something like that. And, you know, they'll be right technically, but uh will they really be right precisely maybe yeah that's that's right tony because like most of the market like you know we had nine percent inflation here in the united states last year uh that means a hundred dollar item is 109 three percent this year or four percent this year doesn't mean that you're paying 104 it means you're, pay, you're paying 113 for items right. so you're still 13 14 up from pre-covid so do you think that they're trying to get parts of the economy into a deflationary position groceries things like that yeah of course i mean that's okay. whatever politically advantageous it is for the 2024 that's what they're okay. going to target so they're looking for deflation in certain aspects in certain segments yeah i just don't know how they're going to do it okay that's, i mean I they, can, they can you know i have to bring up that you during you know I, I, I do think that they're very unsure and don't really know what's going on right now, because even during that presser, you know, some reporter asked, you know, would you call a soft landing expectation plausible? And the first thing out of Powell's mouth was no. And then he yeah. went off and then he went off and he backtracked, you know, with uh, like some garbled word salad. How to destroy a year and a half of narrative. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, again, and I just felt the whole time, you know, I had, I had made notes that he was just very contradictory and came off very unsure. He did. Yeah. I felt that same thing, that he was very hawkish, but he wasn't confidently hawkish. And it tells me that they're they're a little worried, I think. And I, I think the, you know, the data that comes in in October, we really need to be looking at some things kind of uh, falling over. So. Here's just an anecdote that um, that I know about. Uh, I have a friend who runs a um, a shop, and they had to hire people over the past year at a certain wage, and they're now offering new people a much lower wage than they paid uh, last year. Okay, wow. and they're looking at cycling out those higher wage people with lower wage workers. So. That is one way to get services wage deflation, I think. Yeah, but productivity goes down. There's a double-edged sword here. Maybe. It might. I don't know. Um, but I think the people on the front lines who are managing shops, who are managing landscaping firms, who are managing you know, a lot of this stuff, they're really looking at how do they bring down their, their hourly wage because their customers can't take any more price hikes. And so for these services firms, they're trying to figure out how to bring that down by 10%, 20%, something like that, so that they don't have to continue to pass price hikes onto their customers because their customers, they just can't take it anymore. So we're at that point in the cycle, I believe, where uh, the consumer is fatigued. Now, there are plenty of people on social media who would tell you the consumer isn't fatigued, you know, all this stuff. But the American consumer, I think, is very <laughs> fatigued. So Robert, what do you certainly getting there certainly getting right. there you can right. even see it in the luxury items market where you know you go just just go to a mall walk into a gucci right. store and a year ago it was filled to the brim with everyone buying 800 shoes today you go there and there's maybe two people in it now you right. can see it on the ground i don't need data numbers to look at it 
Right, yeah. exactly. So Arnold, let's go ahead. Oh, go sorry. Ahead. No, go ahead to add to that. I think the other thing that, you know, is is also uh, a kind of a canary in the coal mine is all of the strikes happening. You know, you don't you don't see that happen unless people are really getting squeezed. You know, so I think that is a, a very good barometer to show us that, listen, even though spending has held up OK, the consumer is getting squeezed right now. And, yep. uh, you know, they won't be doing all of this strike action if it's not if it's not hurting at this stage. That's right. Exactly. So we are at that weird point where there has to be a turn somewhere. I think we're going to start seeing it in the data. And we may have a we may have a month in the next couple of months that really surprises to the downside conveniently, but it might be true too. Heads up for a short break. Are you using the potential of AI in your portfolio management strategies? With an impressive 94.7% forecast accuracy on average, you can confidently integrate AI into your approach with CI markets. Visualize the potential volatility of your portfolio over the next 12 months and gain insights into specific assets that might experience fluctuations. This empowers you to make informed decisions on when to buy, sell, or hold. CI Markets covers a wide range of over 1,600 assets including stocks, commodities, forex, indices, and economic indicators. Imagine running limitless portfolio scenarios to optimize your gains. Curious about the outcome of removing or adding certain assets? Wondering how your portfolio might evolve in the next 3, 6, or 12 months? CI Markets equips you with answers to these crucial questions. Whether you seek a streamlined portfolio analysis, wish to explore diverse scenarios, or aspire to track your investments with precision, CI Markets is the ultimate tool for you. Ready to learn more? Visit us at completeintel.com markets. Thank you. And now back to the show. So let's talk about other central banks. Um, Arno, we've seen the ECB continue to go into rate hikes. Um, they're slightly behind the Fed, I think, in terms of hikes. And um, even though the ECB continues to, hi to hike, the euro continues to weaken against the dollar. So we have a chart here that shows one year uh, UST against uh, the euro. and is the ECB still, do you believe the ECB is, is still behind the U.S. in terms of inflation fighting? Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we're almost 2% difference on the headline, over a percentage difference on the core. And the problem that we have in Europe, in Europe right now in, in terms of you know, inflation is that they, unlike the U.S., they don't produce, right? So they are, they are in a much tighter situation right now. You can obviously add in China into that mix as well. But sticking to inflation, they're definitely behind the curve, definitely behind the Fed. But the big difference here is that they don't have the economic data right now to back up more tightening. You know, if you take a look at U.S. data, even though, you know, there is definitely cracks showing up. I mean, Atlanta Fed GDP, I looked at this earlier. We still oh. had four spot nine percent. So... <laughs> You know, I know that's going to be revised lower, but growth is holding up much better. You know, so growth is OK in the U.S. There's been that whole U.S. exceptionalism narrative running around. And I think that's been the biggest uh, negative driver for the euro right now. But in terms of the ECB, where they are right now is a is a much bigger rock in the hard place for the uh, compared to the Fed, because they actually have the growth data that is so dismal. I mean, if you take a look at today's French uh, flash PMI data that came out, it's pretty dismal. You know, the mm. German data was 
better than expected, but we're still below <laughs> 40 on manufacturing, you know? So right. it's looking bleak. I just don't think they know they're behind. Everybody knows they're behind, but the growth data doesn't allow them right now to be as hawkish as they should have been. You know, they should have gone much more aggressive earlier, um, but you know, where they are now, they can't anymore. They should have done it earlier, but now it's like a rock in the hard place. And again, you know, if you take a look at what's, what commodities are doing right now, that whole reacceleration in inflation um, narrative, it's its something, I didn't think they would even mention it, but, but I was quite surprised at all of these central bank meetings, all of them mentioned the recent move in commodity prices. You know, you would kind of want, you would kind of think they would, you know, try and steer away from it, but they actually all said, listen, this is something we're watching, it's a concern, but what can they do? You know, if they can, if they continue hiking right now, if Germany is already in a recession, how much worse can it get for them? So it's a, it's a, they're in a rock and a, between a rock and a hard place right now. So do you think, given the economic data prints, do you think the ECB has over-tightened given their performance? No, I don't think so. I think, I think the cycle just kind of caught up to them a little bit earlier. Um, I think the one thing that the, the big difference between, I would say, Europe and the U.S. in terms of the hiking cycle is a big component of their problem, I think, was China. You know, everybody was expecting China to do okay. And yeah. I mean, that narrative has just been completely smacked out of the park, you know. So I think for them, the, the cycle caught up a lot faster because China, that massive exposure to China was a big influence for them. Um, and obviously, you know, they, they are more, they are more um, exposed right now to all of the other geopolitical concerns going on. Um, in terms of whether they've over-tightened, I think they could have done more. They should have done more a lot earlier. The, the one thing that I think is quite interesting, though, is that even though, you know, even though most of the data is probably made up that we get from uh, from China anyway, but, you know, if we get data in Q4 that looks slightly better than expected, you know, at some stage you would expect things to start looking okay, even if it's, you know, not real numbers. And I do think that the, the sentiment when it comes to the euro uh, or the eurozone right now has been pretty pessimistic for good reason. But you know, if China does start showing some signs of recovery, whether that's real or not, um, that could feed into some positive sentiment for um, for the eurozone. And if the data starts looking slightly better, maybe there's a scope for them to potentially hold rates higher for longer as they plan to. If that doesn't happen and China tanks, we're probably looking at the first central bank to cut rates, um, you know, in terms of the ECB. But I do think quarter four could be a little bit of a wild card um, looking at China right now. Okay, interesting. So you don't you don't think Europe is necessarily done. Um, they're just kind of in a data dependent hold pattern. It sounds like. I think I think if growth held up, they wouldn't have called a pause last week. Well, at least signaled that they are done. I think if growth looked better, like the Fed, they would have rather opted for maybe one or two more hikes. But you know, when we know that from a political perspective, Germany is so Germany is so important for their decision making. You know, so when you look at German data. You know, it's kind of like it, that's the elephant in the room. You know, everybody's looking at Germany when you want to make a policy decision. Um, and I think that's where the problem comes in is they have to kind of they have to they have to talk more dovish for the sake of the growth um, story. If that wasn't the case, I think they could have done one or two more. They should have, you know, if you, if you yeah, I get, look at what they're doing. I get the sense if we had a German ECB head, we would have hiked. They would have hiked earlier uh, yeah. and sharper. But because we have a French ECB head, it's been slower and more moderate. I could be wrong, but that's the way it seems to me. Can we talk about Japan for a little bit and BOJ and some of the dilemmas they're facing? So, you know, we have this um, BOJ chief who's relatively new. He's been in the seat for about six months, right? And 
we're kind of standing standing pat on policy. We're not necessarily taking action either way. Is that really a function of the Japanese economy? I mean, the the, the PMIs came in pretty weak, um, mm. uh, even weaker than expected this week. Um, uh, imports are way down, like mm. double digit down in the same way it was last quarter when they had that stellar GDP growth, but it was just stellar GDP because of the import adjustment. So, and the BOJ is obviously very important uh, in terms of obviously uh, Asian trade and um, and money markets. So, so what is the BOJ thinking right now? And do you think they'll move soon, or do you think they'll just continue to play it safe and and sit where they are? I think I think their biggest problem has been has been history. You know, time is not on their side. They've I think they've that whole deflation narrative that we've had in place for what's it three decades. I just think that that whole thing, they're not able to shake that off. Um, you know, there's some there's some positive signs. You know, in terms of wages, it does seem like they're really trying their best, at least from a policy perspective, to try and boost wages and try and you know get inflation up that way. But I think one of the let's just let's just assume wages do go up decently. Will they be able to change the Japanese consumer's mind, their whole mentality? Um, that's you know around spending and not being as frugal. If you unless you change that and unless you change the demographics, they're always going to have this type of tail problem following them. So I don't know. You know, I, everybody got excited a couple of months ago about them potentially moving. And look, inflation. I think they could have taken a shot at it. You know, with inflation where it is. Just try and try something different, maybe for a change. You know, you've tried this for three decades. It hasn't worked. You haven't stimulated the economy at all. So maybe try something else. But I think for them, it's really, I don't think they're going to move soon. Um, they should have done it already. Um, they had the chance, but I don't know. This bank, I think, is just stuck in that mentality. It's going to be difficult to, I think, persuade them otherwise. Because they're so integrated with China, do you think they're caught? Given China's downturn, do you think they, you know, they're caught between, say, the U.S. running a little bit hot and China running pretty cold? Are they are they caught in the middle? You think? I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a um, a caught in the middle scenario. Um, they've a couple of months ago they had a good chance to move away. You know, everybody, the markets gave them that leeway as well. Mm -hmm. You know, if yep. everybody was prepped for them to start moving away, I think they should have taken that chance when they could. And you know what? A couple of quarters later, they could have maybe said, hey, we made a mistake because growth is slowing down. But I mean, growth has been anemic for three decades. You know, growth is, they oscillate between no growth and very little growth, you know? So it's like, maybe maybe, maybe they should have moved ahead of time. I think regardless of China or the US, um, they, they need to make a decision to move away from this type of policy. And if they don't take the shot now with inflation at the highest levels in four decades, I'm not sure what's going to convince them. I mean, mm. growth, I don't think at this stage, growth should be their driver. I think at this stage, they should look at inflation as, you know what, let's just hike interest rates and see what happens. Um, obviously, there's a lot of concerns with the amount of JGBs they're holding. There's a lot of, you know, losses in store for if they move uh, yield. So maybe it's more a case of the balance sheet. Maybe that's their concern. Maybe they would, but how can you reverse that? You know, after you've bought, I think they're sitting on what, 51 or 52% of all JGBs in circulation. And ETFs, you know, right? You have to either stop 
and then start you know getting rid of that unless i don't know i don't know what they can do um they they they've they've dug a big hole for themselves okay albert what do you think about uh boj are you do you think they should move a little bit more hawkish I think they should to head off inflation. I think they do have a wage inflation problem on coming. And I think because of China's slowdown and their in, their manufacturing has been increasing slightly, I think that they're, they are going to have a problem with inflation. I think they should move right now, but who knows what they're thinking behind the scenes and who knows what Yellen and the Treasury are asking them to do on the back end. So, I mean, yeah, I agree with Arno. They should move, but they're probably not going to. Yeah. Tracy, with Japan's import data down so dramatically, are they importing less energy? Is that is that a part of a component of it? Well, they they were at one time. I mean, they are uh, the largest importer of LNG, natural gas in the world. They were just surpassed by China. Um, we did see a little bit of slowdown, but we also have seen some projects with Russia, right, that are new in the Arctic. Um, to sort of secure supply. So that dynamics changed a little bit. So they're, you know, now kind of a partial owner of that. Um, but we are seeing what's really interesting in the energy sector that we're seeing in Japan is them reigniting uh, their nuclear capacity and opening up and extending uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear facilities. And so that's been very good for the uranium market. Great. I noticed you said partnering with Russia. So let's just hold that for a minute. <laughs> okay, um, Tracy, let's move on to energy. So um, uh, you put out a brilliant tweet earlier this week about aging refineries in the U.S. We've talked about this many times before. Uh, so this should not be news to any regular week ahead watchers. Um, you said unplanned mechanical issues are up 53% from last year. So how much has this stuff contributed to higher gasoline prices in the U.S.? Well, I mean, certainly it does add a problem because when you have demand that is still high and increasing into the year, right, we have a demand for uh, gas is 6.8% higher than it was this time last year. Um, so we have increasing demand and obviously we have a shrinking or stagnant refining capacity. And that in itself is obviously gonna be a problem. And now you add on more downtime for these refiners due to mechanical problems. And that just exacerbates the situation. When you said 6.8%, is that the price or the volume? Sorry, I missed that. 6.8% demand, higher, higher demand okay. than we were at this time last year. Okay, great. Um, okay. so. Can you help me understand, you also posted about Russia's ban on gasoline and diesel exports. Right. So what markets would that impact the most? Turkey or the EU or India or I'm not really sure. It's going to impact, uh, it's going to, well, Turkey obviously is their, their largest buyer, but, and therefore the EU. So the EU purchases a lot of diesel from Russia, all, even with the sanctions, because if they, you know, they, there's loopholes, obviously, if it goes through mm -hmm. Turkey, that's fine. Or if it's by ship, that's fine as well. Um, but so that's going to really impact the EU. And that's why we saw, you know, uh, that was, what day was that? I what, did, That was just yesterday. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm losing Long track. Long week. 
but I know. Well, oh my God. So anyway, so yesterday, if you saw what happened was we saw refiners, diesel refiners in the U.S. spike. And that was the only bright spot in uh, oil equities all day. But, you know, and that's because, you know, U.S. refiners should likely benefit from, the, you know, as the EU seeks alternatives, right? So, um, we, I mean, we still have a lot of refining capacity. They already do buy from us. We already do buy from them as well. But so, you know, I, I, I think it'll be good for diesel refiners, certainly with all of that off the market. And that's just globally because they export a lot of diesel. Okay. Globally. So, but if we have refinery downtime and capacity impaired, how are we going to do, how's the U.S. going to do that? Well, but this is a global problem, right? You know, we have Paranus in the Netherlands has gone down three times already this year. They they have refined, aging refining problems in the EU as well. And that's the largest refine, diesel refiner in uh, all of Europe. And so there, we have a global refining capacity problem is really what it boils down to. Nobody wants to put money into refining capacity when you have governments telling you uh we want you we want you disappeared by 2030 right we're all going to be driving electric cars by 2030 right right exactly and so this is really it's a global problem it's been a global problem and it's not going away anytime soon yeah so okay so you had some subtle points there and I'm kind of seeing a trend here so Japan is doing projects with Russia on the gas side. Europe is dependent on Russia for diesel still, as long as it goes through Turkey. So, I mean, are these sanctions doing anything? I mean, it, it feels like this is just a really a stupid kind of fig leaf. Well, if you look at it from the perspective of has Russia suffered from oil and gas sanctions as far as uh, how much money they make? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Right. Price caps been exceeded. Yes. Um, you know, has their economy been hurt in um, other ways? I, I, one could argue a little bit, because if you look at all the stimulus measures they've put in place this year, which is very different for them, for their people to kind of stimulate the economy, you know, as far as we're going to give you money for kids, more mm. kids you have, we're going to give you, you know, there's a lot of stimulus measures that did out there. But really, if we're just looking at oil and gas sanctions, um, at a perspective of, you know, ha has it hurt them financially? No. Tracy, they don't have McDonald's anymore. I mean, I know. <laughs> or Starbucks. <laughs> or Starbucks, right. So they, they're really, they must be suffering. Okay. Um, so in terms of, supply. I want to I want to turn to Albert uh, and talk about this Venezuela migrant issue and kind of work that into a potential supply angle. So Albert, um, this week, the Biden administration extended protection for set 472,000 Venezuelan migrants in the U.S. Uh, this is about the same size as the entire city of Raleigh, North Carolina or Atlanta, Georgia. So imagine adding another one of those cities in one kind of signature, right? So it's significant number of people on the screen. I've got cities in the U.S. that are about that size. So kind of 38th to 40th size of city is what uh, the Biden administration just kind of accepted into the U.S. So 
I want to ask first on the political side. So why are they doing this? Is it election year politics? What does the American electorate feel about these types of immigration, illegal immigration issues? Well, obviously, immigration has become a hot topic ever since the sanctuary city issues in New York City is faced by, you know, I think it's like 100,000, only 100,000 uh, migrants. I mean, specifically with the Venezuelan move by the Biden administration, of course, it's political, right? I think they're miscalculating the political aspect of it because the Hispanic community in America is not unified. This is this is like a fundamental flaw in their thinking for so long. I mean, you have Venezuelans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans you know mexicans you know so on and so forth they don't get they don't like each other first of all you know for for whatever reason you know they have against each other they don't even like each other so the the venezuelan move is you know in my opinion was probably threefold in their minds one would be the political aspect of appeasing the hispanic and immigration um the pro-immigration lobby uh two uh curry favor with the venezuelans to probably get a little better deal on the chevron or other waivers uh, that they have for oil producing um, contracts uh the other issue is labor market you know accepting these these amount of people probably helps the labor market fill in some of the gaps when the boomers leaving the market from leaving the workforce so i think that's what was that's what their calculations were uh i don't think any of them are going to work you know, so I think it's a complete miscalculation in that front. Okay, so um, okay, so let's tackle the labor market first. So, who, what segment of the U.S. population does that hit? So, are they are those new workers going to take out take down the rate that white collar consultants and finance people can charge? Of course, no. right. So <laughs> they're largely no. going to hit lower wage hourly workers who are already having trouble making ends meet, right? That's correct. So I don't understand if that is the traditional Democrat voter, then how is this helping their base? It's uh, in, in in the blue collar. Listen, the Democrats have a problem with blue collar workers leaving the party. There's no question about that. Ever since Trump came in, he's He's siphoned off numerous votes from from that party. They have a problem there. They're trying to offset it with the Latino votes in certain areas of the country, mainly urban areas like, you know, D.C., Philadelphia, Houston. Houston, so on and so forth. Right. I, this is like I said, this is a miscalculation on their part. This is probably going to anger a lot more blue collar vote, uh, blue collar families that are most likely going to lose jobs or at least get their wages uh, cut down. Because, yeah, of yep. course. And that, you know, right now plumbers are making unbelievable amounts of money, but you know, as these, as these lower, lower, lower wage workers enter the workforce, I'm not saying maybe in a year, but four or five years, you know, entrepreneurial uh, Venezuelans will start hitting those markets, hitting the, hitting the plumbing electricians and so on and so forth. And it's going to be a problem. So Arno, from your side of the world, I, I don't know how much U.S. immigration hits uh, the news there. And I know you don't speak on behalf of an entire nation, but what does it look like from outside of the U.S. when you hear about U.S. immigration issues? Well, I mean, for, I think for me, the, the biggest, the biggest um, 
how can I put this? I think the funniest thing is where it comes from. I think, you know, the country that it has to deal with, I think often you don't have to be, you don't have to be in the US to know when it's, you know, purely politically motivated, you know? So when I hear Venezuela and stuff like that, you immediately know it's going to be all about oil, you know? So I think um, for what's, what's interesting is the motives around it. You know, it seems like every single thing is, and it, of course it is, but it seems like everything is just, it's a means to an end. But it does seem like um, from the outside, you know, it seems like very little people that you talk to is happy with these decisions. You know, even 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 those um, from a democratic, um, you know, um, uh, from the Democratic Party, it seems like everybody you talk to is just not happy with the way that these things are going. So, you know, it, it seems like it feels like they are doing their best to anger everybody on either side of the of the aisle. Um, but yeah, it just looks all motivated from 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 this side. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, Tracy, so if this is energy related, how much capacity does first of all, why Venezuela? The grade of oil works well in US refineries, right? Um well, yes. But okay. Then if the grade of oil works well in US refineries, then is there crude capacity to come to the US? No, that's therein lies the problem is this government seems to think or this administration has this idea in their head that they can, you know, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. They used to uh, produce 4.5 million barrels a day. You know, they're at 700,000 per day from 4.5 million. Let's just put it that way. Um, and what they've had is years and years of mismanagement and degradation of their facilities. So if the U.S. really wants oil from Venezuela, they need to pour billions and billions and billions into infrastructure because it's just not possible to get blood from a turnip, so to speak. I think they're completely delusional if they think that you know they can get any sort of real capacity from Venezuela. At this so point. we do have Jennifer Granholm as our energy secretary. So that probably oh wow Great. is the reason Great. for the flawed thinking a lot of, a lot of uh, a lot of trust in that one you know? right. but i mean you know the other the other thing that i've always found hypocritical about the united states stance with venezuela and the oil industry is you know there's such huge climate warriors here in the united states but they completely ignore that lake maracaibo has more oil in it than they're probably exporting you know and and that goes to what tracy was saying about the infrastructure being so dilapidated there that it needs to get addressed i mean this is ridiculous i mean to to to, to work with a country that has oil directly spilled into lake maracaibo is unbelievable you know and i'm yes. not a climate war and i'm not like some kind of hardcore climate you know so on and so forth but i mean there's certain things that you can't you can't sit there and dictate to the world and then completely ignore when it when it suits your interests but it's not here i understand that <laughs> <laughs> so so is it feasible Robert and tracy that the u.s could end up spending billions and billions of dollars on venezuelan upstream infrastructure in order to export more to u.s refineries as a counterweight to saudi arabia and opec no that would fall to like um, i'll let or Tracy go on more, but it'll fall on like Chevron and, and Exxon and others. Okay. So those guys would spend the money. 
yeah, and what the United States, you know, backfills them later, who knows? Of but. course. <laughs> but that's going to take 10 years, right? It's not something oh. they can whip up. Oh, no, they, yeah, this is not going to come online at all. You need to completely build these, rebuild these facilities. I mean, they, they, you need to rebuild the refine. You need to rebuild everything <laughs> in that and, country. And you're not going to get, a, you know, the problem is, is it's a black hole. You can pour all this money in this country and it's all going to bribes and it's all going to, corruption and the government's still going to steal from the oil companies and yeah, so and it's really and, filling a black hole it's, uh, you know and, it's and what about the brain drain tracy what about the brain drain of all the engineers that were qualified that most likely left to iran or iraq or oh so yeah on? absolutely yeah, yeah so I, I was once working with uh an, a certain asian government who was spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure and um I was trying to encourage them to have transparent tendering. And I asked mm. them the question, how much are you willing to uh, fall off the table to corruption? 10%, 20 30%, 40%? They wouldn't answer the question. So I, I don't think Zero. particularly <laughs> Americans understand how much socialist, I mean, of course, it happens in, in the West too, right? But how much money falls off the table to corruption in these centrally planned economies. Um, and so if the US were to spend 50, $100 billion on the upstream in Venezuela, we could write 50% of that off and it would not be focused on uh, the upstream at all. It'd be focused on going into different pockets. 30% is a small amount to siphon off to corruption. So, um, they, so they, should, they should come and visit us here in South Africa to see what happens to all of those funds, you know, all of these amazing projects. Tell us it's, about it, Arno. Like, where does uh -huh. it go? Well, if, if you take a look at our biggest, you know, um, success story in terms of trying to sort out the electricity mess that we're in, they are going on 10 years now, something that should have, they should have spent, uh, I think they should have spent two or three years on it. We're going on 10 years now. It's still broken. It's still down. There's still load shedding. You know, every single time that Western governments pours money into uh, South Africa or economies like South Africa, you know, it's a, it's a fairy tale to think those things are going to go to those projects. You know, it's a, like you said, the, the correct uh, wording is it's a black hole. You are mm. just going to keep on feeding money and it's not going to give you the result you need. Okay. So we can conclude that a rational person may decide that the Venezuela move is not about upstream infrastructure and it's not about crude capacity coming to the US. So it's not about a counter to OPEC and Saudi Arabia, right? Um, so it has to be about labor cost, right? It has to be. Has to be. There's no other, there's no other reasoning. I mean, it it's I would say two thirds labor costs, one third appeasing the Hispanic vote. If you were gonna give me if I was supposed to give odds, that's that's what I would that's what I would say. Okay. Interesting. So so it's not just the Fed fighting inflation, it's also you know the executive branch through you know yeah it's, immigration it's policy yeah it's core it's coordinated i mean inflation has been a top issue for the past two years now it's not going away it's just getting worse so of course we're gonna have yeah. to try to address it one way or another but it's hurting the very lowest end earners in the u.s economy and that's the tragedy in this is that yes it's alleviating some stress but it's hurting the lowest income earners in the u.s economy so you know, does that help services wages? Like, and at what at what um, time frame does it help? In three months, six months, a year? 
year. A year. Okay. Yeah, about a year. Okay, so it's going to take some time still. Especially, right. especially in the hospitality hospitality sectors, I would definitely look at that come June, July, June, July, August of next year, and you know, could see, could see it come down. Okay. All right. Well, we'll wait a little bit. Mid, right, right in the middle of election season, we'll start. Yeah, to imagine that. What timing? Imagine that. Really interesting timing. <laughs> Perfect. On that note, guys, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been really insightful. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend and have a great right. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week's episode of The Week Ahead. Please don't forget to rate us and review on whatever platform you are watching or listening to this. Thank you.